0: Hello, and welcome to A History of Japan. Season 8, Episode 20, China's Famous Visitors In 1298, Rusticello of Pisa sat in a dank Genoese prison cell, more than ready for the latest war to end. The real crime, in his opinion, was locking away someone as important as himself, even if he had been fighting on behalf of Genoa's enemy, Venezia. He had, after all, written the sweeping romance Roman de Roi Arthur, which made him the first Italian author to tackle the legend of King Arthur. Didn't the Genoans know how important he was? Languishing under the crushing weight of boredom, he started a conversation with a man in a neighboring cell, a newcomer who had just been locked up a few nights before. When he and his neighbor were released a few months later when Genoa and Venezia signed a peace agreement, Rusticello of Pisa had enough material for a new book, one that would outshine even his previous work. This new manuscript, which was divided into four books, was called Livre des Merveilles du Monde, which literally means Books of the Wonders of the World. In English, the book was titled The Travels of Marco Polo. A Venetian merchant whose father and uncle were also Venetian merchants, Marco Polo claimed to have traveled through the Middle East, along the Silk Road throughout Central Asia, before finally arriving at the court of Kublai Khan in Shangdu. His father Nicolo and his uncle Mafeo had previously journeyed to the east starting around 1260, leaving Marco behind at the time as he was just a child. Initially in Crimea, which was then occupied by the Ulug Ulus, also known as the Golden Horde, the Merchant Brothers came into contact with many Mongol officials, including the ruler of the Golden Horde, Burka Khan. In 1266, they elected to travel with a Mongol delegation to the court of Kublai Khan in Kanbalik. The great Khan took a liking to the Italian merchants and sent them back with a letter meant for the Pope. It was a request for 100 teachers, priests, and other representatives of Roman Catholicism to come to China so that he might place them in charge of the Christians in his empire, a move which proved extremely unpopular with Christians in China and Mongolia, who were generally Nestorian Christians who rejected papal authority. When Marco Polo's father and uncle returned to Venezia, the Vatican was between popes. When Pope Gregory X was finally elected as the new bishop of Rome in 1271, the Polo brothers took the letter to His Holiness, who promptly dispatched them to deliver Kublai Khan's request. Sort of. He did not have 100 teachers on hand. But he sent two friars along with some oil from the lamp of the Holy Sepulchre, which Kublai had also requested. The Polo brothers were tasked with taking the Pope's response back to Kanbalik, and on this trip they brought young Marco along. He was around 17 years old when he embarked with his father and uncle on their grand journey to the east along the Silk Road. There is still some controversy over exactly which route they took, But, according to the travels of Marco Polo, the journey itself took four years, and involved visiting many famous cities of the Middle East, Central Asia, and China itself. At last they arrived in Shangdu, which was then the capital of the Mongol Empire, and presented Kublai Khan with the oil of the Holy Sepulchre which they had been entrusted with, along with a letter from Pope Gregory X. The two friars which had originally accompanied them had long since deserted the mission. According to the travels of Marco Polo, Kublai Khan was impressed by the now 21-year-old Marco's quick wit, intelligence, and etiquette. The Khan employed Marco as an emissary and proceeded to dispatch the young man to India, Indonesia, Vietnam, Burma, Sri Lanka, among many other nations throughout South and Southeast Asia, and returned to Kublai Khan after every mission to entertain him with stories of his adventures in those various courts and nations. In 1291, after 17 years of traveling throughout the interior of East Asia and China in particular, Kublai Khan finally granted permission for the Polos to return home, provided they performed for him one final task, to escort Princess Kokochin to her new husband, Argun Khan of the Ilkhanate. When they arrived in Persia, it turned out that Argun Khan had just died, so the princess was instead wedded to his son and successor, Gazan Khan. In 1295, Marco and his father and uncle returned to Venezia with great wealth in tow. When Marco Polo later related his adventures to Rusticello of Pisa, he probably had no idea just how popular the resulting book would become. The Travels of Marco Polo was a bestseller in its day, as it provided detailed descriptions of peoples who lived very far away from its Western European audience, as well as the magnificent cities of the Far East. Because this all occurred during a time before printing presses were used in Europe, the many versions which were hand-copied, translated, recopied, edited, and revised often contradict one another and thus present a somewhat muddied narrative. Far from being merely a character-driven memoir in which the reader follows Marco Polo on his many adventures, the author Rusticello frequently paused the story for long, detailed descriptions of the cities, peoples, and landscapes encountered by the travelers. His descriptions of battles match up nicely with contemporary descriptions of European battles of his day, leading many to doubt not only Rusticello's account, but whether Marco Polo ever left Venezia in the first place. Some who doubt Polo's journey and subsequent adventures will point out that the Venetian son of a merchant never mentions chopsticks, foot binding, or the Great Wall. Some claim that Marco never traveled beyond Persia, as many of the terms he uses were of Persian origin rather than Chinese or Mongol. However, I think some of these critics are making anachronistic assumptions of their own. First, it is important to remember that the account itself was not written by Marco Polo himself, but a self-appointed scribe who may have left some details out if they did not serve his purposes. He may have mentioned chopsticks to Rusticello, who may have thought he was making them up. As for foot binding, the travels of Marco Polo does actually observe that Chinese women appear to have a dainty, shuffling walk, but it is entirely conceivable that Polo never would have observed their bare feet for himself. I actually find the seeming omission of the Great Wall to be the least convincing accusation of all, given that the now ubiquitous Chinese monument only reached something like its present contiguous state in the latter part of the Ming dynasty, that is, the late 1400s, nearly a hundred years after Marco Polo had visited. Also, considering that the earlier rammed-earth great walls which dotted the northern border were originally built to defend against Manchurians and Mongols specifically, it makes some sense that Kublai Khan would not be eager to reward those who broached the subject. I think it much more likely that Marco Polo did visit China, did serve Kublai Khan in some capacity, and perhaps discussed his journey with Persians after he escorted Princess Kokochin to her new husband in Persia. Regarding his actual role within Kublai Khan's administration, he may certainly have exaggerated his own importance, but it's also possible that the great Khan flattered him to keep his loyalty. It may have bolstered Kublai Khan's legitimacy as a world-conquering descendant of Genghis to have a Western European at his disposal to parade in front of other nations and reinforce the idea that the UN dynasty was destined to rule the entire world. The impact of Marco Polo's account was tremendous in its own time and beyond. In 1375, a group of mostly Jewish cartographers collaborating on Majorca Island produced a massive map, which we call the Catalan Atlas. This work, which I encourage you to Google because as maps go, it is pretty awesome, includes East Asia and uses the same names originally found in the travels of Marco Polo. Contemporary skeptics accused the Venetian merchant of wholesale fabrication in his descriptions of sprawling East Asian metropolises governed by a civilized aristocratic class. The belief that undergirded this criticism was the racist idea that East Asians were savages who could not possibly form such impressive civilizations. This belief was not helped by the fact that the primary point of contact between Western Europeans and East Asians at this point was the Mongol invasions. Still, the travels of Marco Polo helped to squash some truly bizarre superstitions floating around about East Asians, portraying them as regular people in a time when other fabulous visitors claimed that knee-high imps populated the banks of the Yangtze River, and that the Chinese countryside was filled with monsters and men with no joints in their legs. Deserving of special mention is the fact that Marco Polo seems to have encountered Nestorian Christians during his travels in China. He also did mention paper money, as well as a detailed understanding of salt production, as well as the state's income from the monopoly it held on salt commerce, details which match up with contemporary Chinese sources. One final note on the accuracy, or lack thereof, in The Travels of Marco Polo is that the author's primary writing experience was in composing sweeping romances. The axiom, write what you know, sometimes means the author will approach a new genre in a way that is not in keeping with traditional understanding of that genre, but will instead use the conventions which they are comfortable with. There is little question that Rusticello took liberties, and in some passages cribbed from some of his previous work, like his rendition of King Arthur, but the core experience of Marco Polo is, for the moment, considered broadly accurate. Toward the end of his life, Marco Polo was asked point-blank whether the book about him was true. He is reported to have said, I have only told half of all the things I have seen. Delusional ranting or legitimate bragging? You decide. From the arid reaches of North Africa came a different traveler who became famous in part for visiting China. Abu Abdullah Muhammad ibn Battuta, commonly referred to as ibn Battuta, was a jurist and legal scholar from Tangier, a city in northwestern Morocco. In 1325, at the age of 21, the Berber Maghrebi scholar decided to undertake the Hajj, a sacred pilgrimage to Mecca which every able Muslim is expected to perform at least once in their lifetime. The typical pilgrimage from Tangier to Mecca and back again was around 16 months in Ibn Batuta's day, but he would not return to his homeland for 24 years. The journey seems to have sparked a love for traveling and adventure in the heart of Ibn Batuta, who ventured across much of northern and eastern Africa while exploring nearly the entire Arabian Peninsula as well. He traveled with caravans for safety and by 1332 had seen much of the Muslim world at the time. He traveled along the Black Sea coast aboard ships and also visited with Turk groups living in Asia Minor, which is today the nation of Turkey. Having now completed two separate trips to Mecca, he turned his eyes eastward and traveled through Central Asia, passing through the domains of the Golden Horde and the Ilkhanate, whose leaders by this point had adopted Islam as their religion. He continued overland through many different polities in India until finally sailing around Malaysia and reaching China in 1345. He found shelter with some fellow Muslims who lived in China as he explored East Asia. Unlike Marco Polo, he does mention the Great Wall, though his experience seems to justify any supposed omission on Polo's part he believed that the walls in northern China had been built to contain the demons of Gog and Magog, which are mentioned in both the Bible and the Quran. However, no one he asked about the wall seemed to know what he was talking about, nor had any of his contacts actually seen the structures for themselves. Upon returning in 1354, he wrote a Rihla, which is a travelogue in the tradition of Islamic literature. In it, he recounted conversations, encounters, and whatever lessons he felt he learned along his journey. Like Rusticello's work, Ibn Battuta's account has also come under scrutiny with the passing of time. It has been pointed out, for example, that he confused the Grand Canal with the Yellow River, and that the order in which he claims to have encountered cities throughout Asia Minor do not make sense considering the actual locations of these settlements. Whether he kept an active journal while traveling, I don't know. If he was attempting in 1354 to recall the entire 24 years of adventures, encounters, cities, cultures, peoples, and religions he had witnessed, it is understandable that a few things may have gotten mixed up. Absolute veracity of their accounts aside, Marco Polo and Ibn Battuta both served to expand the general conception of the world for their respective audiences merchants, both in Muslim and Christian spheres, would often read through these accounts to see what goods might be found in the further reaches of the world. The so-called Age of Exploration was partly fueled by latter-day fans of the travels of Marco Polo, and Christopher Columbus himself possessed and annotated a copy of the work. The broader connections both trade and cultural encouraged by Mongol hegemony over so much of Central and Eastern Asia meant that information could more easily be shared and that the world itself seemed a little less vast, a little more within reach. While the exploration encouraged by these works often led to genocidal encounters in later years, I like to think it also encouraged people to broaden their understanding of humanity. This is the final episode of the publicly available podcast for this season. The following episode, an exploration of the craftsmanship of the early Muromachi period, will be published exclusively for Patreon subscribers next Monday. The Monday thereafter will feature an extensive exploration of the successor states who rose in the wake of the Mongol Empire collapsed, followed the next Monday by a special story episode following the adventures of five young men who become Ashigaru during the Onin War. If you've been thinking of joining the Patreon as an official subscriber, now is a great time. In addition to the bonus episodes I've described, you'll also gain access to all the exclusive bonus episodes from previous seasons. Please consider subscribing if you haven't yet made the commitment. Patreon.com slash Japan, All one word. This podcast will return on March 6th, 2023. Until then, everyone stay safe out there. Thank you.